Welcome to the Hot House podcast, your go-to for discussions on books that tackle the climate crisis and its intersecting issues. I'm Izzy, a journalist and photographer. And I'm Diora, a journalist and writer. We started the Hot House Book Club in 2022 when we realised we wanted to create an accessible and educational space to dissect the intricacies of climate change. We have hundreds of members from all over the globe and those of us based in London meet every six weeks to discuss our latest read in real life. Last year, we read a range of books from How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm to Orwell's Roses by Rebecca Solnit. This year, we wanted to make sure that regardless of where you're based or your time capacity, you can stay engaged in our discussions, enhance your understanding of climate change and generally stay informed about climate action around the world. We want our podcast to be for everyone. Whether you're a tree hugger or are simply curious about climate change, no one knows everything, including us. It's why we're trying to do our reading. Expect episodes that analyse the books we're reading, occasional interviews and more. Please rate and subscribe to our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Hot House Book Club and our other social media handles are linked in the show notes below. We're entirely self-funded, so your support is deeply appreciated. For our first read of the year, we'll be discussing Chris Goodall's What We Can Do Now, a book which effectively outlines how the UK can achieve net zero by 2050. Shortlisted for the Wainwright Prize, What We Can Do Now is described as an urgent, practical and inspiring book that signals a Green New Deal for Britain. Drawing on actions, policies and technologies already emerging around the world, Chris Goodall sets out the way to achieve this. From his perspective as an economist working in energy technology and climate change action, he proposes building a huge overcapacity of wind and solar energy, storing the excess as hydrogen, using hydrogen to fuel our trains, shipping, boilers and heavy industry, while electrifying buses, trucks and cars, farming and eating differently, encouraging plant-based alternatives to meat, paying farmers to plant and maintain woodlands, making fashion sustainable and aviation pay its way, funding synthetic fuels and genuine offsets and using technical solutions to capture CO2 from the air and biochar to lock carbon in the soil. So Izzy, why were you drawn to this book? I think it's a really good overview of like UK-specific things that we need to do to tackle the climate crisis. I think a lot of the time when you think about like policy or like climate policy action, because nothing is being done, you feel like there's perhaps nothing to do. And I think in reading this book, it makes you realise that there's actually a myriad of, of things that we could be doing to tackle the climate crisis or that the government could be doing. One of the things I was reading, I, I was reading the reviews of this book on Goodreads and some people were frustrated that it was UK specific, but I was actually really glad that it was because it's quite rare that you see something so specific to your country. And I think a lot of the books that we've read already in our book club have been quite global or America focused. I was wondering what you thought about some of the individual suggestions that Chris made and whether anything stuck out for you, anything in particular with some of the work you've already done, some of the research you've done. The one thing that I really don't like that he talks about in the book, I mean in the book I think as an economist we see that he has a very like technological lean, like he's very tech will save us and I think some of the tech that he asks us to deploy is really interesting like the hydrogen question is actually putting together like a lot of old tech in a way that's new and innovative but he's not really relying on too much innovation because a lot of people that 
are very pro-tech have this like idea that this magical solution will come in the future. So I like that he's using tech in that way that's very straightforward or in the way that he talks about insulation and housing or using heat pumps. And he brings examples from lots of places in Northern Europe that have similar climates that have done the same thing. I think the only bit I take big issue with talking about like magic tech is when he talks about geoengineering. I'm so anti-geoengineering because I think it's just a big distraction. Like maybe it will be necessary in the future to suck this carbon out of the atmosphere, but right now we need to think about how we're going to stop putting it into the atmosphere to start with. And a lot of the time when you, the sorts of people that are pushing for direct air capture of carbon are people who are having lifestyles that massively contribute carbon to the atmosphere. And they're thinking like, oh, we should just do like direct air capture versus like, maybe I shouldn't fly on my private jet. I think it just doesn't contribute to like the mental model shift that we need to combat the climate crisis. But I did really like how he talks about the local energy systems, energy islands, um, kind of like more of a local approach to that, because as we know from who owns the wind, it's very important to get your local community on side. I loved how he talked about housing, because that's something that I haven't really encountered much in environmental books. And I did find the hydrogen thing interesting, but it's something that I guess I want to read more about. How did you feel about the the hydrogen question? I don't really know that much about hydrogen, so it definitely left me thinking I need to go away and read up on hydrogen. And I I was actually looking into where we are with hydrogen um, stuff kind of as I was reading along and there are some great news about how it's being used in aviation and I think there are some great experiments being made and some good results but as well as developing the technology and we don't know if it will be exactly where we need it to be and that's that's the risk right um, we need to be thinking about how we could reduce as much as we can in a way that's like humane and just I think you've summarized it perfectly in what you were just saying in that I don't think he's looking at this like holistically. I think he's assuming that things will remain the same and we just need to kind of do replacements for a lot of things. Whereas actually, I think we also need to be questioning why we are in the mess that we're in and whether we do need to be creating as much clothing as we currently do, for example. He does say that we should be buying less and and using things for like and making things last longer but then I guess he's not he wasn't really addressing like the reason why people are buying so much and are addicted to buying so much or maybe they're being told to buy so much and that kind of frustrated me it just felt a little bit like the onus was really on individuals when it comes to the question of overconsumption rather than like the really powerful messages and the millions of pounds spent on advertising to make people want to buy things it felt like the focus wasn't kind of in the right places at points in the book it feels like a whistle-stop tour of like solutions that I don't really think a lot of the time he has um the capacity to like go in on things in such a sociological way but I get what you mean like I found there's chapters on like animal agriculture and farming and forestry and I I really felt like the forestry chapter was done quite poorly because he's advocating for increased forest cover in the UK But then he kind of takes a turn as if, like, we can increase forest cover, but we need to be using this forest for timber. But that kind of really changes how effective your forest cover is. If you're focusing on timber production, you'll use, like, conifer trees 
And conifer trees, I mean, there's three types of native conifer trees, but it's not the type of woodland that you really want to be putting in for biodiversity. And then also, if you're growing it for wood production, the way you plant the trees is very different to how they would emerge in nature because you have to get your saws in and your people in and you have to grow it efficiently. So I think he uses the term forest but he doesn't really consider like what he's meaning by forest. Or maybe he is thinking purely economically because he's an economist, he's not an ecologist. But I think if I was advocating for more forest cover, and I do think it's really positive, I would be thinking about increasing biodiversity within that forest cover. A lot of it does feel like resource management. And I guess like that is part of what we need to really understand uh, when it comes to dealing with climate change and how we've ended up here and how we're going to get ourselves out of here. It can't all just be resource management. That's yeah, something I also took away from this. But there was something good in, ag- in the agriculture section where he talks about using ancient seeds to guard against like change in weather because these plants have deeper roots and they grow taller, but they have half the yield, but you can grow them constantly instead of every other year. Um, So I really enjoyed that he was kind of thinking about it then, but that also seemed like a very economic way of thinking. Um, He also makes one comment, I wrote this down about organic farming. He's not very pro it. He says something like, oh, it it doesn't make the carbon impacts that we need it to. And he forgets that the whole point of organic farming is also biodiversity and the health of the soil and... I, I guess that's one thing that really isn't integrated in this book at all, is consideration for nature. And that's something that we talk about constantly in the book club. So let's talk about housing. He starts the chapter by telling us that homes produce 15% of the UK's domestic emissions, mostly through the burning of gas in central heating boilers. And um, yeah, and I think... Therefore, this really is an area we need to be focusing on. And I think for me, I've started thinking about this question after the Insulate Britain campaign. I had no idea what this group of activists was trying to achieve before they kind of burst out into the scene. And since then, I've been obsessed with like the the need for retrofitting and insulating our homes because we could just save so much future energy so yeah I was wondering what what you really enjoyed about this chapter yeah I think it also made me think about Insulate Britain and it made me realize like how furious I am that that campaign got like co-opted by right-wing media and the environmentalists were like vilified to an extent where I don't think we ever got beyond the phrase Insulate Britain like I don't think the general public was ever really educated or like the media never really expanded on what they were asking for because you read this chapter and you think this is so obvious this is so good for the country this is so straightforward and like you can like most of us probably in London live in a damp house like I I don't really think I know anyone who doesn't have an issue with mold in their house um so maybe they should have been like stop Britain being moldy and then maybe more people would have been like oh yeah (laughs) Yeah, well, you say that, but also we've had this cost of living crisis, this spiralling energy crisis as well in the last couple of years um, due to various factors. But like our bills are rising exponentially. I don't know about your energy bills, but I am quite scared of the winter months, actually. I'm scared to see just how much energy I'm using to keep this house 
warm um, and I know that there are things that could be done within the flat I'm currently in to reduce drafts and um, yeah just improve the the heat retention um, but it's also costly right it's this idea that net zero policies are going to cost people a lot of money when really it's going to cost the government money of course we, we do need to be putting so much money behind so many different things so many different policies to meet our targets which are legal legally binding by the way but the issue is now being kind of communicated in a way that it's exploiting people's fears about the costs landing on them. And it shouldn't be that way. And that's, I think, how so many policies have been kind of pushed back um, because it's riding on that fear that people are going to have to front these costs and they shouldn't really be having to front these costs in the first place. There should be systems that are in place to make sure that people feel protected financially. So I, th I think this housing issue is really, really interesting. And I think also knowing that the UK has some of the leakiest houses in Western Europe, because we have some of the oldest houses, this is going to be an issue that's ongoing until we sort it out. So I'll be really interested to see how this topic comes up and if it does come up ahead of the general election. It was in that net zero rollback speech Rishi Sunak was saying about like making people convert to heat pumps. They're extending the deadline for that because it comes at such a high cost to like the person who has to do it. And that speech was so interesting because it was like, I don't, well, he's, I mean, a very clever speechwriter did it to manipulate people's opinion because like, the general public shouldn't be fronting the cost of converting their house from heat boiler, from like boiler to heat pump. Like that should be something that's heavily subsidised in an ideal world by the government. So that speech made me furious. And also I think that whole speech was talking about how environmental um, kind of changes like that are going to cost the general public so much. Whereas actually, if we had a good subsidisation programme, or even if the government funded a lot of these changes, it would actually lead to a reduced cost in living for so many people. Because like you said, then you have to spend less on your heating bills or your electric bills. The other central hidden question here is house ownership. So if you're renting a house, you're not going to put any money into it to do like any installation or any major changes as you shouldn't because you don't own it and you'd be sinking a lot of cash into it but also because the landlord themselves isn't living there and experiencing the mold and the leakiness and the cold and the drafts they're also they have no kind of motivation to do these changes either unless it's called upon them by like housing standards whereas if you owned your home and you knew that you were going to live in there for the next 25 years you probably would put some good roof insulation in because you're going to save money on your bills so the issue is the landlord's not going to do it because they're not saving money on their heating bills and you're not going to do it because you don't know how long you're going to be allowed to live in that place for anyway. There was an excellent programme on Channel 4 the other day called The Great Climate Fight and it spoke about retrofitting and the need to really deal with our housing problem. So I just mentioned a second ago that the reason we have some of the leakiest houses in Western Europe is because they're some of the oldest. But there's also another problem and it's that a lot of new homes are not meeting the correct energy standards um, and they still have high heating requirements because of weak regulations and poor construction standards. So that's definitely like another thing that, yeah, we can blame it on old housing, but also 
how much is being done right now in terms of regulations and policies to make sure that bad houses aren't being built. But I liked how he kind of then goes on to say that like that's expensive to do now but like if you're doing a whole street at once it becomes cheaper once people like once comp I mean sadly once it's probably gonna be private companies but once private companies start to be able to do that they're gonna speed up their systems like the workflow is gonna be faster it's just inevitably gonna get cheaper as more people offer that service as well so I think right now it kind of feels like when you're about to climb a hill and you're like oh god this is gonna be really hard but actually I think as soon as we start doing it and start seeing development in that sector hopefully if the money's there and the will is there it could it, do- it like it doesn't have to be as hard as it sounds I think this chapter was great, um, the one on energy, and because it really made me think about different ways we can do energy. And I think growing up or just being an adult, you don't really think about energy that much beyond your bills. And um, I think it was, you know, when the energy crisis kind of happened, that's when I really started trying to understand the UK energy system and like who produces energy, who then goes to sell it and then how is it spread around the UK? So, you know, the national grid and all the different components of how we get energy to power all of our devices that we use day to day. And I think this chapter kind of offers alternative visions for this national energy system that we currently have. So I thought the German energy transition was so interesting because the question that we always come across when we talk about implementing solar panels or wind farms is you are asking a lot of the local community that lives alongside these things. Like, as we saw in Who Owns the Wind, like, there's always going to be an impact on the local community, and it becomes quite difficult if the negative impact is held by the community and the positive impact is just extracted by the company that owns the wind farm or the solar farm or any sort of infrastructure like that. And the thing that's so interesting about the German energy transition is that it was based around a lot of community-owned energy projects. So if you had a wind farm or if you had a solar farm, the community themselves would have some kind of stake in it, which would mean that they would get cheaper electricity bills or they'd have some kind of share of the profits. Um, I think it talks about how in Munich a lot of the energy systems is owned like at a municipal level. And I think, again, if you talk about the cost of living crisis, this is such an attractive proposition to people because you could say to them, okay, we'll build a wind farm in your local vicinity. The building of it is going to interrupt your livelihoods for like the next two years. But as a result of that, you're going to have half price energy for the rest of the time that you live here or it's going to be community owned. So everyone indefinitely has cheaper energy. And then you start to lessen the nimbyism that occurs when you're asking people to like kind of support these projects like it makes me think of where I live they're building a nuclear energy interconnector I mean it's controversial because it's going through like nature marshland but I think the key issue is is I'm from Portsmouth and there's two main roads on and off the island and to make this project it's going to block one of the roads that goes onto the island for the next year and a half as a result of that a lot of local people are going to be incredibly disrupted but we have no claim to like the the profits of this project so you're just asking people to really be highly disconvenienced with no kickback and that's never going to be a way of getting people on your side or getting them to be pro 
renewable energy and then it means that people see these renewable energy projects and it's they become symbolic of something that you're you stand to lose so then the narrative that like the net zero transition is a bad thing people are so susceptible to that because they're like I'm just being disrupted and I'm not getting anything one thing I was just going to add to that is I think generally and he poses a, a few of these questions so he does seem to kind of think that big energy companies especially like multinational corporations are concerned about climate change and therefore really want to act on it but just they don't know how <laughs> I don't agree with that view I think he paints them to be much nicer than they actually are and I think they know exactly what they're doing and they're just going to try and keep having the license to pollute for as long as they can and I think like when we talk about carbon capture as well I think often carbon capture is being kind of pushed forward so that the status quo doesn't change in, in how we basically extract fossil fuels and keep extracting fossil fuels but so I think what I appreciated about this chapter is that in thinking about local energy and thinking about how it's distributed it really challenges um the power that multinational corporations have in our energy systems and i think anything to try and break that down is always good because you just don't want all the power to just be in in the hands of very few people individuals or groups so when the government was justifying like Rosebank or Cambo, they're, they're always talking about energy security and geopolitical issues. And obviously that's a complete lie when it comes to those two, because they're owned by foreign companies and it's, you know, it's been pro proven to be false. But actually local energy systems give us such a strong standing geopolitically and in energy security because you're so removed from anyone else. Um, and it's interesting how that kind of fear of security hasn't been like used to to really encourage this which is obviously why you realize that the Tories don't care about energy security it's just kind of about profit making um and that also brings me to like these um oil company multinationals like Equinor and BP like they do all have renewable projects they're just I don't even think there's any agenda the only agenda is money making and it's kind of like if you remove the subsidies from oil and gas development and put them into renewables, that's where they would go. Like they have no preference aside from making money. And he mentions this in the book that the reason that a lot of them stick to the non-renewable energy sources is because to make a shift would present a short term profit reduction to shareholders. And that's just what they don't want to do. And it's kind of how can we transition into more long-term thinking in the current economic and political system that runs on like four-year cycles or quarterly cycles? And I think that's, it was interesting that he slightly points to it, but he doesn't go very hard on it. It's almost like it's like a throwaway point that he says. You mentioned energy security, and I think ahead of the general election, this is another narrative that I've kind of seen come up and with some of the work I've been doing on climate communications. Basically, with energy security, I think it's really interesting because energy security is a term that means loads of different things to different people. And I think when the government talks about energy security, and this is, by the way, a term that's used both by the Conservatives and the Labour Party, I think they're talking very much national security. And because we live in a very, like, globalized energy system geopolitical conflict does affect our energy supply as a result but i think for most people like you and i energy security means what on earth happens to our bills and whether those you know increasing bills will then have knock-on effects and 
do things like we've seen rising inflations and just like spiraling costs. So I think it's interesting how this one term kind of means so many different things for so many different people. And maybe there are people who see energy security as a national security question as well. And maybe that's why they're also concerned by it. But it's it's fascinating how this term has been used both in a negative and positive way. And I think there is definitely an opportunity to use this term in a positive way and talk about the power of local energy sources and distribution and therefore how that can provide more security for most working people as well as actually national security as well uh, kind of doing two things in one go but I think that's kind of what repeatedly makes me want to like bang my head against the wall when you hear all of this like climate action net zero demonizing speeches because at their core like we've said on this podcast today like a well-insulated house with a constant energy source that's not like subject to geopolitical like kind of changes just gives you a warm house with cheap energy how is that a bad thing for anyone that's like such a good thing for every single like citizen of the country it's just so upsetting that it's like presented as this awful thing when actually it helps to move everyone forward the only people that that doesn't serve is the energy companies but sadly it's the energy companies that are pouring money into politics and campaigning and lobbying political rhetoric it's just it just really shows you how broken the system is because the government isn't acting in its citizens interests at all i guess we could talk about what questions are we left with that would just be i guess like reiterating that he doesn't quite take a full systems change approach does he it's it's very pragmatic i think that's the issue really, because for me, I view climate change as uh, very much a product of global capitalism. And I think when we are presented with incrementalist changes that don't really address the bigger problem, the kind of new problems might arise along the way. And I think with the way climate change is presented in this book, to me, it's not really connected to capitalism. Do you know what I mean? Like it's maybe like here and there. And I think that not doing that just means that, yeah, you're left with issues of social justice which or, and global justice. And, and I think there was one part of the book, which I just want to, I did outline. He basically says in towards the end, when he talks about direct air capture of CO2, he says, my guess is that as the consequences of climate breakdown become obvious, we'll need DAC both to produce synthetic fuels, which will then be burned, returning to returning the pollutant to the atmosphere and for sucking large amounts of CO2 out of the atmosphere. So he's just basically talking about this specific technology. But he says, my guess is that as the consequences of climate breakdown become obvious, and it's like, but they already are obvious. And like, maybe they're not obvious to us in global North countries where, uh, but actually they are obvious to us already, just to say that, but like maybe they're not as obvious. That's where the justice element is missing, the global justice element, where we're not already considering like everything that people in the global South are experiencing. And that kind of made me mad, if I'm honest. It made me kind of frustrated. I guess it also depends on like your approach, like whether you're kind of pro-revolution or pro-reform. And I feel like this is sometimes where we diverge in opinion because I feel like I'm very pro-like hacking the current system for like wins as fast as we can get them because I sometimes feel a little bit hesitant about an entire systems change because we don't know 
how that would play out but I mean my main focus on an entire systems change is just that like we have 15 years to do things I think we need to like hack the current system to the point where it's unrecognizable like I would say like the German energy transition is an example of hacking that's got you to that kind of revolutionary change but it hasn't rung any alarm bells in the general public in a way that if you said we're going to do a socialist transition to energy people are gonna be like ah but if you kind of say we're going to make all of your energy cheaper and you're all going to own it. They go, yay. Fair enough. If I've given off this kind of um, idea that I just want revolution now, but genuinely, like, I think I'm also like, I try to look at things pragmatically and like, I want, yeah, like just anything at this point, like anything that will get us to the place that we need to get to that anything also has to just in its bones, think about injustice uh social injustice and uh, you were talking about you know like batteries yeah batteries are good but what does it mean in terms of like mining in different countries around the world for it for the lithium listen i i feel like i'm going into this book for no reason um going in on this book for no reason but i i did like it i thought it was good and and i just want to say like one thing that i really liked actually was the concrete chapter which you know, um, he talks about how globally steel and cement are responsible for about 7% of CO2 emissions. One subject I kind of find missing from general climate change discourse is the production of things and um, also building. <laughs> like, I, I think we're, we're so, we're often just like talking about end products and how, for example, if you have... Um, literally anything like say I've got this water bottle in my hand and it's a uh, Chili's you know reusable bottle and it's like oh amazing it's gonna save me from buying loads of plastic bottles and you know hopefully I can recycle it and blah 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 but then how much are we thinking about like how much energy and resources have been used to create this how much fresh water how much energy in terms of like all the different processes involved in, in like shaping the, this metal and um you know also the, the raw materials and things like that and I, I did appreciate that he really also went into that as well like manufacturing is like a really big area I think we need to be more kind of aware of sadly because we're so removed from those processes like unless you know someone who works in manufacturing or you have some kind of experience with it yourself it's really hard to imagine yeah, I, I appreciate that he went into some of the topics that maybe are not as glamorous and quite hard to like kind of get people to think about. And he did it in a good way. As an economist, he's kind of not scared to tackle the like non-sexy topics. And you just, you see that in housing as well, like how not many people talk about like climate crisis and housing. Like I think sometimes a lot of the time all we get is like energy system. And then food, because food is a very individually responsible thing that's easy to vilify people about. Um, and then like fashion is never really considered as much as I think it should be because it's seen as this like feminine frivolity rather than a basic need. So I yeah, that's a massive bonus of the book is like how comprehensive it is. Like I struggle to think of a topic that he hasn't at least touched on. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Hot House podcast. If you liked what you heard, hit subscribe for more and drop us a rating. You can follow our book club along on Instagram. We're at Hot House Book Club. We're entirely self-funded, so your support is deeply appreciated. And don't forget to grab a copy of our next read. See you next time.